Wait, you got candy out of it? I didn't get any candy. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Anton Hoffman. I'm a pastor at Green Tree Church, and what a thrill to congratulate the Ricks family on this uh, immortality that comes to their home. Thomas Hart Benton created a social history of Missouri. You'll find it in the Speaker's Lounge in the capital, in Jeff City. What a fabulous place it is. He was invited to paint murals capturing the history of Missouri. The next two scenes from the slides give you a general overview of the room. I'm sure most of you have been there. And then you can zoom in and see some of the detail. That large black cloud in the background represents the Civil War. Here's a little episode out of Missouri history. It's the basis of the song Frankie and Johnny which became a hit. Elvis sang it. Some of you remember Elvis. Uh, it became a famous play and then a movie. This next one pictures industry and their slavery. And uh, the final one, just to show you, no, move on, that's the slavery one. Uh, that's industry, keep going. We missed one. There's one there which depicts Jesse James uh, in the red shirt, if you go back one slide. Uh, yes, the James brothers were infamous in Missouri. Now, I invite you to use your imagination this morning to open the eyes of your heart and uh, to engage your mind and transport yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit into a different place, a spiritual place. And when you do that, you can shut out the bulldog station and say, this isn't really a cafeteria. Uh, let's imagine that this is the most magnificent temple, something like Solomon's temple, that was ever built. Uh, there isn't just a grungy, grotty ceiling here. Imagine the walls soaring, and there's a cupola and a dome. And uh, in that dome, there is a painting, because we're going to do murals around the temple, and in the dome is the most important one of all. It was our call to worship. You remember Daniel wrote about the Ancient of Days, and in that dome, I would like you to picture the Ancient of Days. You can draw your own picture. Uh, the last slide was one done by the poet-painter William Blake. It's interesting. You see his, the sun emerging from the sun, and he's laying the beams of the universe with his fingers, and uh, the beams of light form the calipers that he used. The next slide is an older one. Uh, that one is a 13th century fresco from... Uh, the Ukraine somewhere. And whatever you draw, make sure that you get the spectacular nature 
of the person who is over the universe. The Apostle Paul captured it in these words in Colossians chapter 1. We look at the Son and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above, below, visible, invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in Him and finds its purpose in Him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and He holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, He organizes it and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning, leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, He's there towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is He, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in Him without crowding. That is the dome of our spiritual temple this morning. So you may draw a modern picture, you may do an old one, but whatever you do, it will end in a hymn of praise. And this is an astonishing praise to me. One of my favorite hymns, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, Most Blessed, Most Glorious, Almighty, Victorious, Thy great name we praise, and he's the Ancient of Days. So this was supposed to be the first Sunday in Advent, except it's not the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, I was misled, and it's the first time. Congratulate your neighbor. Green trees early. <laughs> Never happened before. Please, God, may it uh, be sustained. <laughs> So this is really an introduction to Advent, so you're getting uh, Advent starting one week early this year, which is fabulous. And in this book of Micah, uh, Tom chose Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 for Advent. And in the book of Micah, we have a word picture of the spiritual history of Israel and Judah. We're going to explore the grim reality in a moment. And slap bang in the middle of the book is this glorious prophecy, which I'll read in a second. Now recall that this book was written 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ. Give you a perspective, the Republic of America is not even 250 years old, and this prophecy was written 700 years before Christ. And for your interest, there are over 320 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the specific person and time of Jesus, and it really gives you a creepy feeling down your spine when you realize how much the Old Testament points to the Ancient of Days. 
This is poetry, so keep your imagination fully in play. Just to tell you, chapter 4, immediately preceding our reading, is a glowing prophecy of Christ's rule. I'm just going to read those few verses, and you will latch on to some things that I'm sure are very familiar to you. Some of them have been turned into song. Uh, this is how that prophecy of the reign of Jesus goes. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. But we live in a world of turmoil, so how will this come about? And here is how Micah follows on. Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be your peace. Let us pray together. Lord, we don't just want to attend a lecture on swimming. We want to play in the waves and surf and snorkel. We don't just want to see a movie on flying. Uh, we want to soar in places of glory. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, will you please make the reading and meditation of this scripture more real to us than the sorry world we tend to make our home. May my words arise from your heart, please gracious God. May our hearts be awakened and aroused to know and experience the things the scriptures portray for your God for your name's sake amen so let's start painting our temple over there in that back corner Micah starts with a mural and it depicts Israel and Judah the nation is split they are now two kingdoms 
There is the capital, Jerusalem, with the temple very obvious. Down the road is Samaria, the beginning of strife between Samaritans and Jews. Both are thoroughly debased thanks to the forsaking, thanks to them forsaking God, and the consequences are really very ugly. And so the next mural must show you in some way all of these things which Micah uses to show what the real spiritual history or reality of the two nations are. Uh, just use your imagination and think about the headlines and the TV things you hear. Fraud, theft, greed, debauchery, oppression, hypocrisy, heresy, injustice, extortion and lying and murder. That's what the two nations have descended into. And the next picture must show the judgment of God. As uh, Billy Graham's wife said, if God doesn't judge the USA for her sins, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Micah chapter 1 starts with the idea of the judgment of God. Hear you prophets, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord will bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. That's why we want him up in the cupola. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth, the mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire all this because of Jacob's transgression because of the sins of the people of God and so we must expect that there will be a judgment day that the climax and end of our era will be a judge judging the nations, and we all will appear before the judgment throne of God, according to the Bible, and according to the Apostle Peter, God will begin with the household of God. So we'll be first in line in the judgment. But there's also the process of judgment. There's judgment happening even now. And as a result of forsaking God and all those sins becoming rampant in the nations, there is a social and spiritual and moral reality that we need to fresco into our next picture as we paint around the temple. And the way God does it, very simply, as we saw in Micah chapter 3, that he gives them up. In other words, they say, and I'll put this in modern terms, we don't want any absolutes anymore. I want my truth to be my truth, and you have your truth, and we'll just live in peace together. And God says, you want that? You got it. 
And so we take prayer and the Ten Commandments out of sight. Now when a man commits adultery, we shouldn't be surprised because there's no moral absolute. There's nothing to tell him that's wrong. When you get defrauded, you've got nothing to say to the man who defrauded you because that's his truth. When you lose your house because of the greed of the banking scandal, you shouldn't be surprised. You should say, God gave us up to our greed, and we are now living in the reality of what we wanted. And so this process is continuing even in our nation, and we can see it in a very real way in our nation. But Micah uses the Google Map technique, and he gives us not just an overall picture of Judah and Israel, but he zooms down, as we've seen, onto the USA. And then using that marvelous Google feature, you can zoom down onto my house, and we will find exactly the same things in my house. You see, most mornings I get up and some mornings I shave and I always brush my hair and I look in the mirror and if I'm really thinking about things, I look and I say, you know what, I'm actually a reasonably godly man. And then I look and I see, wait a minute, what's that shadow that just flitted past in the background there? And when I stare very hard, there are two pictures that come out of the mirror I look in. Looking carefully and honestly, I can say I see a smirking demon in the mirror as well. For in any given week, I can identify as seed all of those sins that we saw as indictments against Israel and Judah lurking in my own consciousness. And if the Holy Spirit were not restraining me and God said, I'm going to give you up, I can guarantee you that I would give full reign to many of those sins which were catalogued in the second mural that we painted. If I gave full reign to all the motivations and impulses and thoughts that flit through me all day long, some consciously and many unconsciously, quite honestly, all that evil would manifest at some point or another. And undoubtedly, every one of them should not just be painted into the mural of Judah and Israel and the USA, but now I'm going to paint a mural of my own life there, and it's not much different to the one indicting Israel and Judah. So salvation is not only a creation in the new birth of salvation that comes to you, 
Salvation is the miracle that God continues to work in a person like me to restrain the evil that is lurking. Now, how about zooming in on your life? You think you're a fairly decent, upright person. But what's the shadow in the background? What does your moral and spiritual history look like? When you listen to the conversation in your head all day long, what sort of arrogance is manifested? In what ways do you try and control and dominate and manipulate people, sometimes with a smile and in a very kind way? You see, the judge in the cupola judges us not just according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of the law. And so he says, you know, murder, murder came from anger, and anger arises from irritation. So when you start getting irritated with someone and don't deal with it, you're going to get angry, and the anger will become resentment. And if you gave full reign to that, and God didn't restrain it through the law of the land in some ways, I mean, if you were really free today, isn't there someone you'd love to murder? <laughs> I've got a few, few people on my hit list. Well, I'm guilty of murder. Adultery begins with the lust of the eyes and the heart enters in and gives full reign to the lust and it would end in adultery if I were not restrained by the Holy Spirit. And so we can also talk about the arrogant contempt that derides anyone as an idiot. Well, says Jesus, you're in danger of hellfire. It is the ancient of days who knows and who judges and we're seeing the outcome of it in our lives even now. But there will also be a final judgment day. And so the stark reality of it all when we ask what is the impact of all this turmoil and we were to draw another mural and we're getting around the corner now, it would be of a battle zone. So our chapter started with marshal your troops. You're being besieged. If you want to know what that looks like, well, just look at pictures of Homs and of Baghdad and of Afghanistan. Bomb-crated streets, buildings shattered by the blasts of explosives in improvised explosive devices. No goods in the stores. No stores. Any car may be loaded with explosive artillery firing randomly. Snipers target targeting you specifically. The fear, the anxiety, the anguish of living there. The only way that people deal with it is they start making a joke about it. And so you'll get black humor starting. 
One cartoon I saw showed two Arab men, obviously uh, Al-Qaeda men, and they were looking into the sky with great agitation, and they were pointing at each other. <laughs> now extract the principles and zoom in on your own life and ask yourself, what haunts you at three o'clock in the morning? When you wake up and can't sleep, what anxieties besiege you so that you can't turn your mind off? What anger boils in your heart at one minute, one minute past three? What schemes are you concocting out of greed? Now, you can get so used to living in a battle zone that it's your normal life and you just get on and do it and eventually you forget where you're living. And that's what happens to us, isn't it? Our hearts are actually this battle zone. We being besieged by these sort of things and we become so accustomed to it that we think that's normal. So there's a startling solution as we draw the next mural in our decoration of the temple. And the first response, of course, is when you wake up to the reality of your besiegement is muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Let's see what resources I can get. What pills can I take? What counseling can I get? What self-help shall I pursue? What peripheral things can I do just to handle with the anxiety or the fear or the guilt or the shame? These things have become so much a part of your interior landscape that they now define you. This is who you are. And in that war zone is this great craving for peace, but we are tormented by guilt and shame and fear. So we've got to define peace as the state of heart that is the opposite to all the anxiety, guilt, fear, shame, and so on. One year I taught in the International Leadership Academies in Belarus, and I spent three weeks in the city of Minsk. It was 1993. The Iron Curtain had just rusted away, thank God. And walking into the city, it was a war zone. Potholed streets, no working telephones, Water ran for maybe one hour a day. Long lines of people before empty stores just hoping to get something to eat. Uh, one day I was taken by one of the academy staff to lunch at the, one of the two hotels that were still standing there, dirty, gray, filthy place. And he brought the menu around and there were 40 items and I looked and I chose one and he shrugged his shoulders and said, sorry, we haven't got that. So uh, I looked again and chose another said, sorry, we don't have that. So I said, well, why don't you tell me what you do have? And he gave me a little wry smile and he said, we've got chicken Kiev. 
That was all they had. So I had chicken Kiev. And then I went to Switzerland to meet my wife for a week in Switzerland. And the difference was so startling and amazing, so stark, that you cannot even begin to describe the orderliness against the backdrop of the war zone of Minsk. And ask yourself, what was the difference between the two? It was war. Belarus has had centuries of occupation and war fought on their very soil. Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, Russia, Germany, Prussia. They've all marched through there and slain and slaughtered and captured and conquered and imposed their will and pulled out all the resources for themselves. And Switzerland never had a war on their soil. So peace is a marvelous thing with much wider implications than we think. And the first response that we do is muster the troops, and you notice how that ends. You're under siege and you're hoping for the Messiah's ending of all war, but in the meantime, here you are in your own private war zone. Can you see it on the murals there? And now here you're saying, I'm going to muster my troops, and the way it ends is really a humiliating result. They humiliate Israel's king. They slap him around like a rag doll. Hitler said he didn't want to be captured because of the humiliation of being paraded like an animal to be spat upon in the streets. And so he committed suicide. And the way of your own mustering of your own troops may give you what you think is peace. But it's not. Because peace is something very different. And here it is. It comes out of Bethlehem. Now, you know the name Bethlehem very well, but when Micah wrote, Bethlehem was, uh, where's that? I pastored in uh, Pilot Grove, Missouri for six months, and I, people say, Pilot Grove, where's that? And I say, oh, by way of Sedalia. And that's what Micah had to do. Bethlehem by way of Ephrathah. Oh, I get the general picture out of Bethlehem, so small and significant, so different to the marshalling of the troops and the, the grandeur of the battlefield, a manger with a baby in it. What? A baby? Are you nuts? We don't need a baby around here. We need a general who can marshal the troops, who can strategize, who can do the political thing to unite the nation. A commander of armies. Ah, but you see, this baby is the ancient of days. And so there's a link between the cupola and the ancient and the baby in Bethlehem. It's the same person. 
And I remind you that thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing, and uh, the river of fire flowing, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's the baby who will give you peace. And so this startling reality must grip you that peace is to be found in a relationship. You've been saying the way of peace is marshal your troops and defeat the enemy. Then I'll be able to sit under my vine and enjoy my fig tree without being hassled. And so you've done it that way. And now we are learning something very different. That peace is not the removal of all the things that are hassling you. Because that would mean the cemetery, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're not ready for that yet, are you? <laughs> That's where you find the peace that you are defining. I'll get buried. Nothing will disturb me six feet under. So peace is not God putting a band-aid on your pain. Peace is not you suntanning idly on a glassy sea with a pleasant sway and slap of the gentle wavelets, floating on an enchanted membrane, a place where ocean and sky and boat and you are all joined together in one blissful ecstasy. A friend of mine was invited, and I end with these two stories, to sail from Durban around Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. I think it was a 50-foot yacht specially designed, and off they went, and while they were in mid-Indian Ocean, a storm blew up, and uh, it's an area known for vicious waves and winds, and the weather got worse and worse, waves got bigger and bigger, wind shrieking more and more through the rigging, and his friend simply furled the sails, tied everything down, battened down the hatches, and said, okay, uh, put out a sea anchor to keep the yacht facing into the wind. Said, we can go to bed now. <laughs> he strapped himself into his bed and said, strap yourself in, it's going to be rough, but you're safe. This ship was designed for these conditions, and I've seen it go through worse, and he turned over and went to sleep and slept like a baby. My friend didn't. <laughs> he had peace because the ship had been through it before and knew everything. This is the ancient of days. Whatever you're going through, he's been through as if in a pressure cooker. I mean, crucifixion. The father turning his back on him. You can trust him. And it's in a person, not a yacht. So my last story is out of the life of the great Charles Spurgeon. He preached in London in the late 1800s. 
Uh, he built a tabernacle, the Metropolitan ta Tabernacle, seating 5,000 people, and you had to get there two or three hours early just to get a seat, and they turned away people by the thousands. And the great preacher himself would arrive on time, and he came and was mounting the stairs to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to go and preach, and there was a street urchin in his ragged clothes who he could smell from six feet away. And he was sniveling and wiping the snot on his sleeves, and Mr. Spurgeon said, what's the matter? And he said, sir, I tried to get in, and the doorman turned me away. And Mr. Spurgeon said, hang on to my coattails. <laughs> and they climbed the stairs, and the doorman could say nothing because a person of great authority had invited the urchin to hang on to his coattails. So they got through. They marched down the aisle, and the congregation looked in astonished amazement at this strange scene. And Spurgeon sat the urchin on the stair leading onto the pulpit and said, welcome. Jesus invites you to hang on to his coattails. And he's a person of influence. And you will find peace in him. And the storm that you are in, in your interior life, or the storm of your exterior life, he's a person who knows you can trust him. That's the message of Advent. Let us pray together. Great God, we pause to worship you, to thank you, to bless you. You are the Ancient of Days. Thank you that you are our peace. Amen.
strife and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall as you are.